Well, good morning. I love our stretch break, do you? Just a chance to stretch and, and fellowship together. It's kind of hard settling back in, but uh, I love the structure we have to our worship service. Well, if you've been around the church environment for any time at all, you know that we kind of have our own language, like lingo. There's some words that really only make sense to Christians. I kind of call it Christianese. And so things like we describe the Christian life as a walk. And that comes right out of scripture. We're to walk in a manner worthy of the gospel. And so Christians might say to one another, hey, brother, how's your walk? You know, and anybody outside the church wouldn't have a clue what you're talking about, but how is your walk? Or are you walking closely with the Lord? And so we use these different terms. And, and scripture even calls or refers to our Christian life as a race, a certain sense of hurriedness there, a race, urgency. And so we, um, as we go through our Christian life, I think that a walk or a race is probably a good metaphor in part because it brings to mind ideas of fitness and strength and health. And John, that's not coming up for me. If you can hit that, we'll get the slide up there in just a minute. So I, and also, no, I don't think that's the beginning. <laughs> we'll back up. I'll back it up. There you go. So um, it's, there's certain things in our Christian life, our walk, our race, that that actually strengthen us. And they're referred to a lot of times as spiritual disciplines. And so some of those spiritual disciplines that lead to a healthy Christian walk might be things such as Bible study, prayer, witnessing, serving, giving, worshiping. We know that these are things we're to be about and they strengthen us as believers. They strengthen us in our, in our walk with Christ. Now, when you look and think about those spiritual disciplines and others like it, how important is worship to you? Does it rank near the top of the list or maybe further back? Maybe one of the last ones. Yeah, it's, I can, it's okay. It's kind of important, but not a priority, maybe. Well, think about that. How important is worship to you? And I know that all of these are, in fact, an act of worship. When we give, it's an act of worship. When we serve, when we study and pray, it's an act of worship. But specifically, what we're going to look at this morning is musical worship. How important is musical worship to you, the singing of songs of worship and praise like we did this morning. Do you ever think of that as a spiritual discipline? Well, if so, is it a high priority for you? Or is it maybe just something you could take it or leave it? Well, this morning as we continue in our study of Nehemiah, here is our series title, Rising from the Ruins. We're going to be in chapter 12, and the focus turns to that of worship. And... We've been seeing throughout this study that the first half of the book, chapters 1 through 6, are about the physical restoration of the walls. And then chapters 7 through 13 are about the spiritual restoration of the people. And so we saw how Nehemiah led the people 
in this restoration of the walls. They were really committed to being workers on the walls. They did a lot of heavy lifting. And then we saw that they were also watchmen on the walls. They had to pray and take up weapons and defend themselves from their enemies all around them. But this morning, Nehemiah is leading them in a different direction. And we're going to see that they're also worshipers on the walls. And so God has always been far more concerned about people than property. It's not that property isn't important. It is, but only to the extent that property leads us to a healthier spiritual life. It's a means to an end, but it isn't the end itself. The people are. It's the inside that matters most. And so as we get to this chapter of Nehemiah, we're really starting to get down to the goal that Nehemiah was driving towards with the rebuilding of the walls and the government he put in place. And it's the goal that God was driving towards. And that is worship. And so this morning, the message title is Joyful Worship. And we're going to be in Nehemiah chapter 12. And I've broken it down into two parts this morning. The first one, the Levitical registration. It's going to be another list of names, just saying. And the first 26 verses. And then secondly, the musical dedication. And that's where we'll spend a fair amount of our time. And that's verses 27 through 47. So, again, our chapter starts out, once again, with a long list of names. This is the fourth time in which we've seen this in the book. The first was in chapter 7, and it was a tally of all the people who had returned to Israel with Zerubbabel in that first wave. And then the second list was in chapter 10, where it listed the people who sealed the commitment that they made to God. And then last time in chapter 11... We saw the people who agreed to relocate from the country into the city of Jerusalem. And now finally here in chapter 12, we're going to see a, a list of priests and Levites who serve in the temple. And this is like the clergy of the time. And so they're going to be listing it, listed out. I think reading all of these names can be a little bit like reading the phone book. <laughs> Would you agree? Have you ever just read the phone book? I realize there's some younger people here looking at me like, what's a phone book? <laughs> is that a new social media? Is, is that like a catalog where you shop for a new iPhone? Is that what a phone book is? No, it's a directory of all the people and all of their names and their phone numbers. It kind of it feels like reading a phone book. But if it weren't useful for teaching, correcting, training, rebuking, then God wouldn't have it in his word. So there's a reason for this to be in here. Have you ever thought that perhaps this section of scripture clears up or complements something else in another place in scripture? Maybe it wards off some heresy. Maybe that lineage plays an important role elsewhere. So there's a reason for it. And so we're going to read them and we're going to work our way through them. But we'll begin with the Levitical registration, that big long list. And let's just start in verse 1. These were the priests and Levites who returned with Zerubbabel, son of Shealtiel, and with Yeshua. Now, once again, the Levites were the descendants of the tribe of Levi. And then a subset of those were qualified to serve as priests. Those who were descendants of Aaron, Moses' brother. All the Levites were, were committed to working on the temple, but only the descendants of Aaron could serve as priests. And so 
the priests would be the ones that would offer the sacrifices in the temple and they would represent the people before God. So many of these return with Zerubbabel. And I just want to talk about Zerubbabel for a minute because he's been mentioned a couple times as we've been going through the book. Notice how the name Zerubbabel has a word Babel in it. B-A-B-E-L. His name means offspring of Babylon because he was actually born while they were in captivity in Babylon. And Zerubbabel is a descendant of King David. In fact, his grandfather was King Jehoiakim of Judah, one of the last kings to serve there before they were taken into captivity in Israel. But Zerubbabel himself was born in Babylon. He led back the first wave of, of um, Israelites back into the land. 50,000 of them came back with Zerubbabel. And upon his return, he became the governor of Jerusalem. And so he wasn't a king like his grandfather because there was no king in Israel. They were under the king of Persia. But he became the governor, and he led a rebuilding project as well. He rebuilt the temple. Now, there's just a lot of parallels between Zerubbabel and Nehemiah. Both were born in exile. Both were returning with a group of exiles. Both of them were the governor of Jerusalem upon their arrival. Both of them had a large-scale rebuilding project. But Zerubbabel's didn't go quite as easily as Nehemiah's. He didn't finish that temple in 52 days. In fact, it took several years just to lay the foundation. And then there was an 18-year pause because of the, the opposition, the enemies that are around Israel. And then it took another four years to finish the building itself. So it was like 24 years total to finish that temple. And at one point, Zerubbabel got to the point where he was ready to quit. He said, this is just too hard. It's too big a task. I don't feel like I could go on. And it was at that moment that God gave Zerubbabel one of the most familiar and beautiful promises in the Bible. He gave it to him through the prophet Zechariah. And it's found in Zechariah 4.6. I'll read it to you. It says, this is the word of the Lord to Zerubbabel, not by might, not by power, but by my spirit, says the Lord Almighty. See, God was telling him that the rebuilding of this temple would only be accomplished by God's spirit, not by human effort alone. God didn't want Zerubbabel trying to do it on his own. And so we're guilty of that sometimes, aren't we? Trying to do something on our own, prayerless and powerless in our own strength, without the wisdom, direction, blessing of God, we can be guilty of that too. Psalm 127.1 says, Unless the Lord builds the house, its builders labor in vain. Unless the Lord watches over the city, the watchmen stand guard in vain. Now, this doesn't mean that the Lord picks up a hammer and nails and starts working on the building. But it means that God is sovereign. And apart from his involvement in the things we're doing, nothing that we do will be of any lasting value. And so we need to remember the Lord and not try to go it on our own. This was an important reminder for Zerubbabel because the whole reason that the Israelites were taken into captivity is because when they got into the land and they enjoyed the prosperity, they forgot the Lord. They began to think that 
we did this on our own. My own hands have created this wealth and this prosperity for me. And God, that, that is really the heart of idolatry. It's self-worship. It's not the worship of God. And so God is reminding Zerubbabel here, not by might, not by power, but by the Spirit of God that you will accomplish this. Don't forget me as you go about this, this project of rebuilding the temple. And so that's a little bit of a background on Zerubbabel. And it's really important because this is central to where the nation of Israel is right now. They're coming back from a time of forgetting God. And they're coming back into the land and they're learning once again to lean on the Lord for his power and his strength. So now we come to the names. We'll go through these. Seriah, Jeremiah, Ezra, Amariah, Malak, Hattush, Hattush, I'm not going there. Shechaniah, Rehum, Merimoth, Edo, Ginnathon, Abijah, Mijamin, Moadiah, Vilga, Sheremiah, Joyarib, Jediah, Salu, Amak, Hilkiah, and Jediah. These were the leaders of the priests and their associates in the days of Yeshua. The Levites were Jeshua, Benui, Kadmiel, Sherebiah, Judah, and also Mataniah, who together with his associates was in charge of the songs of thanksgiving. Bakbukiah and Unai, their associates, stood opposite them in the service. Now this, this eight and nine, look at these people here. It's not describing like military leaders or political leaders. It's describing worship leaders. In our text, it's calling them out. Mataniah and his associates were in charge of the songs of thanksgiving. And verse 9 says their associates stood opposite them in service. In other words, their praise and worship would go back and forth between two groups of people. It's something known as antiphonal worship. And it's a little bit like the last song we sang this morning. The worship team led and we responded and they led and we responded. Antiphonal worship. And we're going to see that come up again in our text in a few verses. So these are the worship leaders. And then verse 10, Yeshua was the father of Joachim. Joachim, the father of Eliashib. Eliashib, the father of Joyada. Joyada, the father of Jonathan. Jonathan, the father of Jedua. Verse 12, in the days of Joachim, these were the heads of the priestly families of Sariah's family, Mariah and Jeremiah, Hananiah, of Ezra's, Meshulam and Amariah, of, or I'm sorry, of Amariah's, Je, Je, Jehohanan, of Malut's, Jonathan, of Shechaniah's, Joseph, of Haram's, Adna, of Miramas, Helkiah, of Edo's, Zechariah, of Ginnathon's, Meshulam, of Abijah's, Zikri, of Miniamans, and of Muadiah's, Piltai, of Bilgaz, Shamua, of Shemaiah's, Jehonathan, of Jorib's, Matanai, of Jedediah's, Uzi, of Salu's, Kalei, of Amak's, Eber, of Hilkiah's, Hashabiah, of Jedediah's, Nathaniel. So these are all this list of these heads of the priestly families. And then it keeps going with the rest of the Levite families. These are Levites, but they're not descendants of Aaron. So they're not qualified to serve as priests in the temple. 
Verse 22, the family heads of the Levites in the days of Eliashib, Joiada, Johanan, and Jedua, as well as those of the priests, were recorded in the reign of Darius the Persian. The family heads among the descendants of Levi up to the time of Johanan, son of Eliashib, were recorded in the book of the Annals. And now the leaders, verse 24. And the leaders of the Levites were Hashabiah, Sherebiah, Jeshua, son of Kadmiel, and their associates who stood opposite them to give praise and thanksgiving. One section responding to the other is prescribed by David, the man of God. So here's that antiphonal worship again. Two groups standing opposite one another. And one gives a, a song of praise and the other one responds. Almost like we did again this morning. It continues, verse 25. Mataniah, Babukiah, Obadiah, Mashulam, Talmon, and Akub were gatekeepers who guarded the storerooms at the gates. They served in the days of Joachim, son of Yeshua, the son of Josedek, and in the days of Nehemiah, the governor, and of Ezra, the priest and scribe. So these storerooms were usually in the gates or in the temple structure itself, and it's where they kept the first fruits and the tithes and offerings that the people of Israel brought forward. And they were of tremendous value, and so they had to have men positioned there as guards. Now think about it. You're a descendant of Levi. Your role is to serve at the temple, and you get the job of gatekeeper, doorkeeper, guard. It kind of sounds menial, doesn't it? It doesn't sound like a great deal. You're not like the high priest or a priest or anything like You're just a doorkeeper, making sure nobody comes in and plunders the, the, the offerings, the, the grain and the fruit that was given. That would, that would almost seem a little bit menial. But here's the thing. There are no insignificant demeaning roles in the kingdom of God. Every single one of them is important, and God takes notice of it. He lists the gatekeepers here. I'm sure you're familiar with the first half of Psalm 84.10. It says this, Better is one day in your courts than a thousand elsewhere. We sing that, right? But listen to what the second half of that verse says. I would rather be a doorkeeper in the house of my God than dwell in the tents of the wicked. Isn't that beautiful? The doorkeepers were like ushers. They were some of the first to arrive and some of the last to leave. They got to dwell in the presence of God longer than anybody else. They loved their role. It wasn't demeaning. It wasn't unimportant. It was an honor because they were serving the Lord. I had a brother in our church who told me a while back that he'd be retiring soon. And he said, and when I do, I'm going to be knocking on the door looking for work to do. I want to serve in any way I can. And he said, I don't care if I have to clean toilets. I want to serve. Isn't that a beautiful attitude? I don't care. I'll clean toilets in the house of the Lord. It'll be an honor. Well, what a beautiful attitude. A former pastor of mine used to say this, tasks take on a different meaning in a relationship of love. Think about that. Maybe, for instance, the home of a bachelor. Certain tasks just don't seem that important. 
like there might be clothes strewn around, a pile of dirty dishes in the sink, laundry stacked up or on the floor. The bathrooms are probably less than sparkling. I have a bachelor son, well, two now, <laughs> two, but it's just not that important. But now, suppose he meets a gal and she's coming over for dinner. Oh, all of the sudden, it's no problem to scrub that bathroom with the toothbrush to get it all cleaned up, right? Why? Because tasks take on a different meaning in a relationship of love, right? That's how it is when we serve the Lord. Charles Spurgeon once said, if God calls you to be a missionary, don't stoop to become a king. I like that. In the same way, if God calls you to be a Sunday school teacher, a nursery worker, a doorkeeper, don't stoop to be a king. If God calls you to scrub toilets in the church, don't stoop to be a king. See, he's saying, what it's saying is that a job in the house of the Lord is a great honor. And it's better to serve in the lowest of jobs in the house of the Lord than in the most highly desired, recognized role out in a secular place. To serve the Lord, it's an honor and it's not menial. So here, even God even puts down the names of the doorkeepers, the gatekeepers. And they were priests serving in this capacity. I think that's beautiful. We need, to, we need to keep that in mind as we think about our own acts of service. I, I told you before, I used to love it. One of our um, now retired elders who lives back east, you used to find him on a Sunday morning on the floor in the nursery with the kids. And I love that. It was not beneath him. He took that role as a joy. He was serving the Lord. So here are these names and roles of the Levites and the priests who served in the ministry of the temple. And did you know that if you're a child of God, then you too are a priest and you're part of a kingdom of priests. We sang that. I didn't realize that lyric was going to be in our song this morning. Thank you, Andy. But Revelation 5.10 says, you, Jesus, have made them the church to be a kingdom and priests to serve our God and they will reign on the earth. We're part of a priesthood. How awesome is that? And so we're going to see more of the duties of a priest as we get into this second section now. We're going to look at the musical dedication starting in verse 27. So at the dedication of the wall of Jerusalem, the Levites were sought out from where they lived and, and were brought to Jerusalem to celebrate joyfully the dedication with songs of thanksgiving and with the music of cymbals, harps, and lyres. This, the singers were also brought together from the region around Jerusalem, from the villages of Nedopathites, from Beth Gilgal, and from the area of Geba and Asmaveth. For the singers had built villages for themselves around Jerusalem. So we're getting into this musical worship now. And this chapter, singing is mentioned eight times. And thanksgiving six times. And rejoicing seven times. And musical instruments three times. Just in this chapter of Nehemiah. This is what's going to happen here. It's going to be like this loud musical celebration as they dedicate the walls. But why music? Why is music so important in the word of God? 
and in the life of his people. Why can't we just express what we feel? Why can't we just speak it out to God? Kind of like prayer. Why? Why music? Why such a big deal? Because music can express feelings and emotions that words alone cannot. Have you felt that? When you sing a song, it expresses something deeper than mere words. Even things that we can't even get our mind around. Music can express that. It's truly a gift of God, and we're to use it to glorify God. Think of the rule that music plays in any culture. All of our great celebrations involve music. Weddings, funerals, music is involved. Birthdays. Countries have national anthems that they sing, or that are at least instrumental. Movies and stage productions are set to music. Think of the great Broadway musicals. Music means a lot to us. Almost any advertisement is set to music. Why? Because music moves us. It does. Martin Luther said this. This might surprise you. Martin Luther said, I've got him here. Come here, Martin. There he is. Martin Luther said, next to theology, I give to music the highest place and greatest honor. Beautiful music is the art of the prophets that can calm the agitations of the soul. It is one of the most magnificent and delightful presents God has given us. Do you feel that? How important is musical worship to you? Another quote, I really like this quote by Andrew Fletcher. He was an 18th century Scottish writer and a member of the hair club for men, no doubt. <laughs> I'm so jealous. I'm going to have big hair like that in heaven. You know why? Because God says, he who is faithful with little will be faithful with much. <laughs> You're going to like, where's Paul? He's in there somewhere. It's going to be the big do. Andrew Fletcher, he said, let me write the songs of a nation, and I don't care who writes its laws. What is he saying? He's saying that music greatly impacts how we think and how we act. It, it does a work within us. It has a strong influence on us and on our culture. So music is really important. Now notice in verse 27 that the musical worship was flowing out of thanksgiving for what God had done for them. What had he done for, what had he done for them? Well, he helped them rebuild the walls, but it's more than that. It's much more than that. God had taken them into captivity for 70 years in order to bring them to a place of repentance and of committing their lives back to obedience to the Lord. That was tough love, isn't it? But God did it. He did it because he knew the outcome. Someone once said, oh, blessed affliction, which works such desirable ends. Isn't that beautiful? Oh, blessed affliction. Do we think about it like that? What hard things has God brought you through? And in the midst of them, and hopefully especially at the end of them, did it result in worship, like musical worship? God, I'm lifting my voice and my praise to you because you are good. You are worth it. That's what worship means. We're declaring the worth, the value, the magnificence of God. 
So verse 30 then, when the priests and Levites had purified themselves ceremonially, they purified the people, the gates, and the wall. Now this was a holy occasion. They are going to be coming before the Lord God Almighty. And he prescribed certain ways for sinful mankind to approach him. And this usually involved animal sacrifice. It involved different bathing rituals. The priests probably went through the mikvah ceremony. They completely submerge in water. And then they come out and they wash their clothes. And then there was probably animal sacrifice involved. It doesn't say how they purified the people in the walls. Maybe they splashed water on them. Maybe there was blood involved. But there was a lot they, they had to go through in the Old Testament to be able to approach a holy God. But here's the thing. We too should purify ourselves before worship. How do we do that? Well, thankfully, we don't have to do it the way they did. 1 John 1.9 says, for believers today, if we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and what? Purify us from all unrighteousness. I think it's helpful to do that before even leaving home. I often, I often think that if I don't confess my own sin, especially before coming up here to teach the word of God, I feel like I'd be coming up there like with mud all over my feet. And my hands, this sludge that we acquire as we walk in the world as broken people. And so we need to be cleansed. We need to be purified. Then we can come to worship with the right heart and the right attitude toward God. Now, maybe you don't feel that way when you come in. Hopefully, worship and the, and the study of the word of God changes that. And before you leave, you're confessing to God and you're worshiping him with a clean heart. So if we confess our sins, he'll purify us. So we too are called to purify ourselves. Um, and, and I think it's important before worship so that we can worship God rightly. Then in verse 30, it says, I had the leaders of Judah go up on the top of the wall. I also assigned two large choirs to give thanks. One was to proceed on top of the wall to the right toward the dung gate. Now, it's important to note that these leaders are not performers. They're not. They themselves were worshipers. And, and they were filled with this thanksgiving and the overflow of this thanksgiving for what God had done for them. The result of that, the overflow was worship and celebration. I've been to churches where the music ministry feels like a performance. And it just doesn't feel right to me. It's, highly, it's a highly polished production. But it doesn't feel, it didn't feel to me, maybe I was just critical, but it just didn't feel to me like the leaders were worshiping. It felt like they were performing. And, and in some cases, it didn't feel like the congregation was worshiping. They're like they're being entertained. Wow, that was a good one. They nailed that one. It was more like a performance. See, the best way to lead others in worship is to be a worshiper. For ourselves to worship. It doesn't have to be perfect. But it should be genuine. Should be. And I love that about our worship team. They're up here to worship the Lord. And in doing so to lead us in worship. I heard about a church that had a man in the choir who just couldn't sing. And the 
the choir members tried to get him engaged in some other areas of ministry in the church. And why don't, why don't you consider the nursery or the Sunday school? You, you just can't sing. And, and they were complaining to the choir leader. And if you got to go to the pastor and do something about this. And so the, past, the, the, the worship choir leader goes to the pastor and he says, you know, we got this guy and he, he just can't sing. Can you just ask him to like step down from the choir? So the pastor goes to him and he says, you know, I, I, I'm sorry, but I have to ask you to step down from the choir. And he says, well, why? He says, because so many people are telling me that you just can't sing. And the man says, well, that's nothing. He says, 50 people have come to you come to me and told me you can't preach and you're still here <laughs> well we want to give our best to God but I'll take a joyful noise over a, a worshipless performance anytime it doesn't have to be pitch perfect but it does have to be genuine and sincere it has to be an act of worship so these are these are worshipers and verse 32 Whew, more names. Hoshaiah and half the leaders of Judah followed them along with Azariah, Ezra, Meshulam, Judah, Benjamin, Shemaiah, Jeremiah, as well as some priests with trumpets. And also Zechariah, son of Jonathan, the son of Shemaiah, the son of Mataniah, the son of Micaiah, the son of Zakur, son of Asaph, and his associates. Shemaiah, Azarel, Malalai, Galilai, Maiai, Nathaniel, Judah, and Hanani with musical instruments prescribed by David, the man of God. Ezra the scribe led the procession. Now, there were probably thousands of people on the walls. They're going up on the walls to celebrate because, for one, God had helped them rebuild these walls. And so they bring their worship to that very place, but also it was going to be a testimony to the nations around them. Remember back in chapter 4, I think it was, when Sanballat and uh, Tobiah, they were ridiculing uh, Nehemiah and his, his men. They said, these walls you're building, if a fox runs up it, they're going to fall down. This isn't going to stand up. They were trying to discourage them and get them to quit doing the work. Well, now what? We got thousands of people going up on these walls to worship. And they're not falling down. They were massive walls. They stood 40 feet high and they had a thickness between 8 and 24 feet. This again is a picture of a 90 meter section of, of Nehemiah's wall that was unearthed in 2007 by Elat Mazar, the female archaeologist in Jerusalem. And I, those areas highlighted in blue are some of the watchtowers that he rebuilt. And then this area in red is part of the wall there that Nehemiah's team rebuilt. And you don't get much of a sense of scale there. But here, look at this picture. Again, the watchtowers in blue, the rebuilt wall in red. And see that lady in the upper right? That gives you a sense of the size of these walls. Now, they had... I think it would be in the thousands of people in two different groups going around these walls worshiping. And so then back to verse 36, it says they worshiped with musical instruments prescribed by David, the man of God. Now, I get real curious when I see things like that. Well, where did David prescribe that? Well, I dug it up. First, Corinth, or First Chronicles 15, 16. 
I'll read it to you. It said, David told the leaders of the Levites to appoint their brothers as singers to sing joyful songs accompanied by musical instruments, lyres, harps, and cymbals. He appointed these people to lead in worship. Now, there's, look at the instruments that are named here. There's always been controversy over what kind of music God likes. What do you think? What kind of music does God like? There's at least 22 different instruments named in the Bible. You see some of them here. They include cymbals, harps, lyres, horns, trumpets, flutes, tambourines, drums. Jake, there's drums in the Bible. <laughs> Bells and so on. But in all these instruments, I couldn't find one mention of a pipe organ. <laughs> you know, that didn't come into the church until the first documented use of a pipe organ in a church was in the 10th century. Yet, it became known as the sacred instrument. In fact, the only sacred instrument. For centuries, churches said it's a pipe organ or nothing. And, and some churches don't even use instruments at all today. Some still insist on a pipe organ. The sacred instrument. Now, I don't have any issue with pipe organs. They're beautiful. I, I've been in a church, and the sound of that, full sound of that pipe organ, it, it's awesome. It's inspiring. But to say that you can't use anything other than a pipe organ, and it's, I think that's false. Way back in the uh, 1500s, so we saw Martin Luther in the 1500s. He said this. How has it happened that in the secular field there are so many fine poems and so many beautiful songs while in the religious field we have such rotten, lifeless stuff? <laughs> I like Luther. I like how he thinks. He's like, this is bad. <laughs> Some of the Christian music in the 70s is pretty bad too. <laughs> but it, it was lifeless. And so Luther took some of the popular tavern songs and love songs and he set them to Christian lyrics. And people at the time said, that's devil music. You can't use that tune in the church. I mean, tunes like a mighty fortress is our God. <laughs> you know, now we look at that and go, that's sacred music. Back then they said, that's devil music. You can't do that. Now, many of the, the tunes that Luther wrote were written just for the church. But he took popular tunes and he applied them to the church. Rick Warren, in his book, The Purpose Driven Church, wrote, we invite the unchurched to come and sit on 17th century chairs, which we called pews, sing 18th century songs, which we call hymns, and listen to 19th century instruments, um, such as a pipe organ. And then we wonder why they think we're out of date. I'm afraid that we'll be well into the 21st century before some churches start using the instruments of the 20th century. Isn't that something? We don't, a lot of people in churches don't like change, right? How many Christians does it take to change a light bulb? <laughs> change? Who said anything about change? <laughs> we don't, we're resistant to change. But think about how much musical styles and genres have changed just in the last hundred years. Think about it. We've gone from opera to jazz to country, blues Disco, rock, pop, hip-hop, rap. 
Then when rap music, I still, I swear that's an oxymoron. <laughs> you can either have rap or you can have music. I, I don't understand rap music. It doesn't seem like it goes together. But yet, I hear it enough. It's kind of catchy. But we have all these genres of music. And one of the things we got to really be careful of is different generations relate to different types of music. And so music can be something that separates us, that stratifies us as believers. Some believers prefer traditional music. And a lot of times that's older Christians prefer traditional music. And then maybe younger Christians prefer something more contemporary. And you can find churches that only do traditional music. You can find churches that only do contemporary music. And their membership reflects that choice. Ne'er the two shall meet. And so it can be... It can be dividing. And here at Riverside, we really strive to be an intergenerational church. And I think if you looked around during the first half of our service, I think we're doing a pretty good job at that. You see a lot of singles, young families, seniors. And I personally believe that that is a greater act of, I think is more glorifying to God, I'll put it that way. Because despite our differences, when we can come together unified and worship the Lord in one, with one voice, I think that's beautiful to the Lord. And I think it's also a better environment for discipleship with older believers teaching younger believers. That's what scripture wants us to do. And so we strive to be an intergenerational church. But it's, it takes work, especially when it comes to this area of music. So you might prefer contemporary music and wish that all of our worship was Hillsong. And you might prefer hymns. Last week we had mainly hymns. You might want that all the time. But see, to be an intergenerational church, we have to set aside some of our individual preferences. I like this better, but for the joy of seeing my brothers and sisters worship in a, in a, in a format that is really meaningful to them, I'm going to set aside my preference. And I'm going to look at what God's doing as, as, part, as I'm part of an intergenerational church. It takes us setting aside our preferences to maintain that intergenerational nature. Now, I do realize for some, volume can be an issue. There is, if that's an issue for you, whether you struggle to hear or maybe it's just some people are just sensitive to loud noise. There is a map in the, in the office that shows the different areas, green, yellow, red, where the volume that you experience varies greatly. And so if volume is an issue, take a look at that map and try to find a place. But we want to work hard to be an intergenerational church. We want to set aside our own preferences so that we can be that. Well, here in our text, these Israelites, they, this was rich, lively worship music, as we're going to see. And it says, verse seven, uh, 37, at the fountain gate, they continued directly up the steps of the city of David on the ascent to the wall and passed above the house of David to the water gate on the east. The second choir proceeded in the opposite direction. I followed them on top of the wall together with half the people past the tower of the ovens to the broad wall over the gate of Ephraim and Jeshanah gate and fish gate, the tower of Hananel and the tower of the hundred as far as the sheep gate. At the gate of the guard, they stopped. So 
what are they doing here? Well, this is a kind of an overhead view of the walls at the time of Nehemiah. Now, this was two and a half miles of walls, and I put a little circle at the bottom. That's where they started, and these two choirs went on opposite sides from the south up to the north in worship, and they ended up there up at the top near the sheep gate. Now, here's, a, here's kind of an artist's rendition of the city at the time. And you can see the walls there. Now, I don't think it had, it's almost like they show it like a castle with those, you know, high and low spots. I don't know how the people would go up and down over those. I tend to think it was smooth on the top. But nonetheless, you kind of get a sense of it. Now, here's what I think. Given the way the text mentions twice how these worship leaders would stand opposite each other in antiphonal worship, I wonder if that's what was going on as they led these two choirs on the different sides of the walls. Maybe it was this antiphonal worship. One is singing out this praise and then the other side is responding back and forth and it's just spreading over the entire city and all of the people. I think that could be what was going on here. But we're going to see that this was, this was loud worship. It was heard from a long ways away. So verse 40 says, the two choirs that gave thanks then took their places in the house of God. So did I, together with half the officials, as well as the priests. Eliakim, I need my glasses to read these, these names. Messiah, um, Miniamin, Mechaniah, Elionai, Zechariah, and Hananiah with their trumpets. And also Messiah, Shemaiah. Eleazar, Uzi, Jehohanan, uh, Malkijah, Elam, and Azer. The choir sang under the direction of Jezrehiah. And on that day they offered great sacrifices, rejoicing because God had given them great joy. The women and children also rejoiced. The sound of rejoicing in Jerusalem could be heard far away. Isn't that cool? It says in verse 43 that on that day, they offered great sacrifices, rejoicing, because God had given them great joy. Now, when I read that, I thought something very different than what every other scholar I've seen has said on this. And I went digging into this because I just, I question, most scholars believe that this is referring to the burnt offerings and other sacrifices that were given as part of the purification. It says, on that day, they offered great sacrifices but the context within that verse and this section of the chapter is not the purification it's the worship I think it's talking about a sacrifice of praise and worship personally now I could be wrong but um, let me point you to something here Psalm 69 verses 30 and 31 say this this Old Testament I will praise God's name in song and glorify him with thanksgiving this will please the Lord more than an ox, more than a bull with its horns and hoofs. Isn't that cool? A sacrifice of praise is better, more pleasing to the Lord than an animal sacrifice. We'll now fast forward to the New Testament. Hebrews 13, 15 says, Through Jesus, therefore, let us continually offer to God a sacrifice of praise, the fruit of lips that confess his name. I kind of think that's what's going on in this verse. It's a sacrifice of praise. Worship is something that we give up to God, like a sacrifice, like an offering. 
If we think, I'm not big on worship because I don't really get anything out of it, then we've missed the whole point. It's not at all about what we get out of it. It's about what we give to God, what we offer to him. Worship is not about us and what we get out of it. It's about God and what we give him. And so we're to offer this sacrifice of praise. So keep thinking as we think back to that original question. How important is worship to us as a spiritual discipline? Well, maybe as we start to understand really the purpose of worship, maybe that level of importance in our minds starts to change. Verse 43 also says the women and children also rejoiced. See, this time was a time of worship for everyone. I love that. And that's why I love what we do here at Riverside, where our children are with us in the first part of the service. They get to see their mommy and their daddy worshiping the Lord. And they get to participate. We have some young voices here that sing out. And I love it. It's beautiful. And then they can go to Sunday school and learn at their own level. But they're all together here worshiping. And that's just what they did here in Nehemiah's time. And then at the end of 43, it says that the sound of rejoicing in Jerusalem could be heard far away. Cool. Back in 1994, a group of friends and I from church made a trip. I was living in Albuquerque, and we made a trip up to Boulder, Colorado to attend one of the very first uh, Promise Keepers conventions. I think it was the, probably the third year, but it was like the first big one. And it was held there, I think it was the University of Colorado. And so we got together and we went up there and it was awesome. And then the next year they outgrew that. So they went to the old Mile High Stadium in Denver. There were 55,000 people in Boulder. There were 75,000 people in Mile High Stadium. It was packed. And some, some of the guys flew with me up there and some of them drove up there. And year after year we did this. Any promise keepers here? Yeah, look at that. That's so cool. I learned a couple years ago that Dave was at that Boulder conference. And, and I was, too. I didn't know him then, but I think I see him. <laughs> right there in the lower left. That was an awesome conference. But my favorite part, the thing that I will never forget, is being in a stadium with 50 or 75,000 men worshiping God. It was this roar that rose to the heavens. In fact, they reported one year that there was a man in a hospital three miles away. And he opened the window to his room and he could hear the voices of the men worshiping in the stadium three miles away. He said it was like a choir from heaven. Wouldn't that be awesome? Well, that's what our text says here. The, these, this rejoicing, the sound of rejoicing in Jerusalem could be heard far away. I think that's cool. Verse 44. And at that time, men were appointed to be in charge of the storerooms for the contributions, first fruits, and tithes. From the fields around the towns, they were to bring into the storeroom the portions required by the law for the priests and the Levites. For Judah was pleased with the ministering priests and Levites. They performed the service of their God and the service of purification, as did also the singers and gatekeepers, according to the commands of David and his son Solomon. For long ago, in the days of David and Asaph, there had been directors for the singers and for the songs of praise and thanksgiving to God. That's really cool. They're getting back to what Israel had been. 
The time of David was like a high point for the nation of Israel. And then it went downhill from there, going down toward the captivity. But now they're returning. They're returning from the ruins, you might say. And, and I love that it says that the people brought these things joyfully. This is what supported the Levites and the priests so they could minister at the temple. Again, they didn't have land of their own. They couldn't farm it. They were dependent on the people. So this was their staff of sorts. But it also says that they were pleased with the ministering priests and Levites. I think it makes a difference, really. You're not giving. I, I, we had a new, newcomer's connection Friday night. We're talking about giving. You don't give to the church. You give through the church. You give to the Lord. You don't give to the pastors. But yet every meal I eat, when we're giving thanks, I think about you guys. Because you make it possible for me to quit my corporate job and come here and study the word of God. And to do my best to teach it. And so that's only possible because of you. But I've been in a situation in a church where that wasn't, there wasn't that joy for what the pastors were doing. And it can, it can steal your joy from worship. And, and it can really hurt. But here, I just like that it says they were pleased with the ministering priests and Levites. You know, one of my prayers is that I would represent you and our church well. I don't want to do something where you would go, oh. Paul, because I know it can just steal a heart of worship. I'm not perfect, I promise you. Ask Deborah. <laughs> but I want to be faithful, and I want to be, I want to model what that looks like for us as a church family, as the Lord enables me. So they were pleased. And then in verses 45 and 46, it speaks of the commands of David and his son Solomon in regard to worship. And I dug up this account too. It's in 1 Chronicles 23, and I'm just going to real quick summarize it and we'll be done. Um, David had the Levite men counted, and he found that there were 38,000. And then in verse 4 of 1 Chronicles 23, David said, of these, 24,000 are to supervise the work of the temple of the Lord, and 6,000 are to be officials and judges. 4,000 are to be gatekeepers, and 4,000 are to praise the Lord with the musical instruments I have provided for that purpose. Think about that. David was a worshiper of God, and he prescribed worship for the nation of Israel. 4,000 worship leaders with instruments. It was musical worship. That's 10% of all the Levites were dedicated to musical worship. There was a tremendous emphasis placed on musical worship. But what about for us, New Testament believers? Is it the same? I think it is. I think even more so. I think there's an even greater emphasis on musical worship for us. I don't think it's optional. I don't think worship is an elective. I think it's really commanded in Scripture. Ephesians 5.19 says, Speak to one another with psalms, hymns, and spiritual songs. Get this. Sing and make music in your heart to the Lord. Always giving thanks to the Father for everything in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ. In other words, the things he's done for us, there should be such thankfulness that it overflows in song. Make music in your heart as you're going about your day. And then finally in verse 47, so in the days of Zerubbabel and of Nehemiah, all Israel contributed 
the daily portions for the singers and gatekeepers. They also set aside the portion for the other Levites, and the Levites set aside the portion for the descendants of Aaron. That'd be the priests. So again, these tithes and offerings supported the work at the temple and the ministry of worship. I just ran out of time this week, and I didn't do a, a big fancy wrap-up slide, but just a couple points that I want to just bring this back to. Worship was a big deal. Musical worship was a big deal for the nation of Israel, and it should be for the church as well. I love that this is a singing church. I, I mean, I've been in churches where they just, you know, this church sings because I believe it's an overflow from the heart of thankfulness and praise to God. And I think it's beautiful. I don't know how you feel about musical worship, but listen to this one final quote from A.W. Tozer. He says, I can safely say on the authority of all that is revealed in the word of God that any man or woman on this earth who is bored and turned off by worship is not ready for heaven. Now, we're not going to just sit on clouds with harps and we're not, I mean, heaven's going to be an awesome place and we're going to be busy, but worship is going to be a really key part of it. See, music expresses feelings and emotions that words alone cannot. But we also have to be careful as a church body that we don't let music separate us. Different genres, different styles. We need to set aside some of our own preferences so that we can have the joy of worshiping as one unified body so we can glorify God as one body and in one voice. Maybe there's times where you don't feel like worshiping. I've been there. And I was talking to a brother last Sunday and some of my most memorable and meaningful times of worship came on Sundays where I didn't want to be there. But it's not about how I felt. I'm going anyway. Because God's worth it. And I'm going to worship him. And when we don't feel like worshiping, it's an even greater act of worship. Because it's a sacrifice of praise. And that brings great glory to God. Would you pray with me? Heavenly Father, there's just a lot in this text. But what we take away is that you are worthy of all our worship and our praise. And God, we need to grow in our understanding of that and our participation of it, God, because you're glorified by it. You gave us this gift of music, of song. And God, we want to use it to reflect back to you our praises and our thanksgivings, that you would be greatly glorified. Lord, I wish these windows opened and St. Charles could hear the praises of these people far away, ringing throughout the city. God, we love you and we worship you and we lift up our praise to you in Jesus' name. Amen.